and I actually have found that every single human being has something that I'm interested in. I like human beings. I like us. I like our stories. I like the warts. I like the dark and the light. And once you get starting, once a conversation starts, there is material to make a story about. Even if it's abject failure, that's a very genuine reason for me to make a painting. Not just bravery, sadness, loss, um, all of the human condition, I think, is interesting. Hi, and welcome to episode 80 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolter, and my guest today is Ben Quilty, one of Australia's most acclaimed contemporary artists. In the last 15 years, he has shot to prominence not just as an artist, although he's won the Archibald, Doug Moran and the Brett Whiteley Travelling Art Scholarship, but as an observer and commentator on social and political issues which concern us all. Whether it's our involvement in wars on foreign soil and their consequences, issues faced by our Indigenous communities, or the cruelty of the death penalty imposed on Myron Sukumaran and on Andrew Chan, which led to his campaign to save their lives, he pours maximum energy in highlighting the inequities and injustices in our world through his actions, words and art. His belief that art can instigate change is inspiring. It was a great time to interview Ben because the excellent survey show Quilty has just landed in Sydney via Adelaide and Brisbane and the Art Gallery of New South Wales is the perfect venue for it given his HSC major work was hung there in 1991 as part of Art Express and 20 years later he won the gallery's Archibald Prize. The exhibition is free, it's fantastic, go and see it. I spoke with Ben on a busy day at the Art Gallery of New South Wales with limited time, so this is not my usual meandering interview in the artist's studio where we start by talking about what drawings they did as a toddler. But luckily, the next episode is with Lisa Slade, the curator of the exhibition, who fills in some of the gaps. So watch out for episode 81 in a few weeks. Ben's exhibited in over 40 solo shows and as a trustee of the Art Gallery of New South Wales gives some great insights into entering art prizes and he talks about how he felt about the Archibald before he won it. Thanks to all of you also who sent such great questions on Instagram for me to ask Ben. I got two in um, from Gavin and John, but sorry to the rest of you. They were all really good, especially those questions about the paint. Ben grew up in Sydney. He studied at Sydney College of the Arts, had a few years of builder's labouring work before he went back to do further studies at uni, after which he started working at Channel 7 as a news editor. And that's where we pick up the interview. But first, I asked Ben about the exhibition and whether he had any role in bringing it together. I didn't have a lot of input. I don't. I don't. I'm really hands off. And when you're talking about someone like Lisa Slade or here at the gallery here, Justin Patton, those two really like they uh, they there are certain things that send me to the studio to make work. And and at Sydney College of the Arts back in the early '90s, I learned that good art criticism or good art theory or philosophy can drive you to want to make work and Justin and Lisa are two of those people and they know how to make their space work better than I will ever imagine so and I'm not saying some artists are very hands-on with that I'm not at all I I, the only painting in this show that I argued against was the painting of Margaret Ollie I feel like I've seen that painting enough 
but then is leave. it because you've seen it enough, or is it? Because oh, I you feel don't like think? it's been seen enough. It took me really an hour to make. It was a one-hit thing. I wanted to win the Archibald. I was sick of entering the Archibald. I made the painting. It worked really well. It got in, but it, I wasn't. It wasn't from life, which I think adds another dimension to it. I, I'm just sort of over that work. But as Lisa said to me straight away, Ben, in South Australia and Queensland, those people have never seen that work in the flesh, and therefore. Um, it has a place. Yeah, it's like when a band sort of doesn't play their big hit. Yeah, a big hit. Margaret would be embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. Margaret Why? is my big hit. I think I've made much better paintings. Um, Margaret, the painting of Margaret was a homage to some a friend, really. A mm. friend and a mentor, although I don't like the term mentor. She was a friend. She was a good friend who stood up for me, who taught me how to stand up for myself. And, yes, I... Possibly that's mentorship. Mm. In what but way it, did she teach you to stand up for yourself? I watched her do it. She, she belittled politicians in front of me, which was awkward. I was a very young man and she'd put them in their place. She stood up for herself. And she was a very, very shy young woman who became probably still a very shy human, but she knew what she believed in and mm. she wasn't scared of anyone. She held artists in the highest regard. Artists were the people who should be ruling the earth through Margaret's eyes. And I thought, what am I worrying about? Why am I playing this second role to people I feel um, in a societal um, hierarchy that I'm lower than them? When you sit with Margaret Ollie, no one except the artists were below her admonishment. Oh, right. So she, so the artist she held in the highest esteem. Yeah, I was yeah. at a lunch with Margaret at her home and um, there was the Premier of New South Wales was there, Edmund Capon was there, Nick Mitsovich, who's now become the Director of the National Gallery, was there. And Nick and I were friends back then. He was the Director of the Newcastle Regional Gallery. And I said, Margaret, I'm, I stood up to start clearing the table. And she said, Ben, sit down, Edmund, clear the table. <laughs> And I, I was appalled. It's like I, Edmund looked out of the side of his eye, glanced at me coolly as I sat down. I was not going to disobey Margaret, but everyone was below her artists. Oh, right. Yeah, I think she sort of took a lot of people under her wing from what I've heard. Yeah, she just stood up for artists when you look at back at and, – and musicians. I mean, there are classical musicians who she kept – like that, and and artists. I mean, there was lots of them: Nicholas Harding, Cressida Campbell. There was a group of us, and and that group was growing and growing. And the longer she lived, the bigger that group became. And there are people she fought for. And really, she wasn't fighting individually for, for us; she was fighting for acknowledgement of visual language of the arts. Can I take you to what seems like a pivotal time for you? It was when you were working as a news editor at Channel Seven. Um, it sounds like you were exposed to a lot of graphic stuff mm. back then. Um, can you tell me a bit about it? Yeah, I read recently that the reason I'm good at talk doing interviews is because I worked in TV. <laughs> they don't quite understand what I did. I worked in like Gollum's cave with a t <laughs> few TV screens and a machine to cut film. I made the package. I made the film come together and overlaid audio and music and, and I loved it. It was an amazing job. It was a privilege to learn how to do that. Yeah. But I it wasn't good at teaching you how to get out of your dark cave. I mean, back then, 
there was editors who'd sit in that dark cave and smoke. And, and it was it was a studio. It was an edit suite, but really it's mm. a studio for visual, for that moving image and music and sound. And you're cutting everything about current affairs, about 9-11. I was working in that, that studio, in that edit suite when 9-11 hit. And one shift as an editor back then was the foreign shift and you watched every single bit of footage that came into the station and you then, on, on the policy of the company, had to then categorise what would go to air and what wouldn't. Um, and back then it actually got me interested. I, I still believe that all of us should see more as long as it's in, is in a time slot where children don't see it, mm. I think adults, whether we want to or not, whether we like it or not, should see what's happening in the world. And there are brilliant camera operators around the world documenting these horrific things happening on the planet and to the planet, as well as the beautiful things and the moments of glory and the moments of beauty. But we, I, my opinion back then was we have a responsibility to look at those things and I looked at them and I saw them and we had a policy of showing no bodies and no body bags and the ABC at that point showed body bags and, and no bodies and SBS showed small portion of a body and, and body bags. So everyone was different right. and I believe at a certain hour of night when adults, responsible adults are watching, we need to see what's happening in our name, particularly in our name in a place like then Iraq or Afghanistan or around 9-11. Mm. Well, you um, you ended up sort of being in a position where you were in, in a war zone when you were an official war artist in 2011. Um, was that um, was that what you expected it would be? What, what was it like? Uh, no, I... I um yeah, so really leading on from working in TV and seeing that stuff, what getting to Afghanistan, what really struck me is I thought I'm desensitised. I've seen a war zone through a camera operator's vision and through their eyes. But when I got to Afghanistan, I realised how wrong I was, that there is nothing that somehow I had been desensitised to my viewing of, of that, that material. There was a distance... And to see it, to witness and feel the anxiety and tension of a place like Tarankot or Kabul or Kandahar um, was, is impossible to describe and was also impossible to relate through news and current affairs. And I had seen it myself. I'd seen the most graphic stuff what that never think? went to air. It's to do with the way we view, the way, the, 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 um, I mean, very... To do with the gaze, to do with the way we look, the way we feel, the way we um, inhabit that space of viewing, and on a TV screen, we are in, we instantly switch off a part of our emotional being. That's just, and I've seen it with myself. I know it happened to me, and I was rocked and shocked by what I saw in Afghanistan how I felt in Afghanistan, which never was related through the TV screen, even though I was seeing raw footage and hearing camera operators' guttural response to very horrific things. Those men and women who shot that footage, many of them got PTSD. Yeah, I could imagine. And you hear them go through the steps of trying to process having shot and, and got this vision, how they dealt with that, but still it was lost on me as a viewer until I got to Afghanistan. And then that's why I think art has the power beyond media to tell the story in a much, much more um, real sense. And in what way do you think? 
it's a very good question. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, the way an art gallery like the Art Gallery of New South Wales is set up is to tell a much more sophisticated story than what we are programmed to understand through a TV screen. Um, and I, look, I'd use all of the film screen, um, two-dimensional screen technology. Films are made to be very simplistically understood. The best films are much more sophisticated and complex, but as a mass media form, we are programmed to receive very simple, very two-dimensional concepts through that medium. Mm. Whereas an art form, people come to art with the prepared to go an extra step to under, understand complex conceptual meaning um, and to, to unpick taboos and to look in the face of mortality and look in the face of beauty, mm. all things. Well, that, um, you know, I think one of the most moving paintings from that period was um, that Kandahar painting, which mm. I think was one of the first ones you did. When I got home, I made Kandahar straight away. I did a drawing on the plane home, um, which was my memory of Kandahar, of the fact that it's actually a beautiful, very, very spectacular, beautiful ancient landscape, but hovering over the top of it is this human, psychotic human construct, and that is war. Um, and I did a very simple drawing, and that painting fell out of me as soon as I got home. And I thought, yep, there it is, I've done it. That's as much as I can do. I can't do more than that. Mm. Uh, so it's sort of like a. It was like a floating dark mass. Of, oh, it's hard to describe, but um. yeah, it was a sense of an emo, a floating emotion. I've often made paintings about trying to make a form of emotion to paint that sense of how you feel. Mm. Um, but I thought, I mean, there is this thing where possibly I could have. I could have unpicked that further and made a, a series of works about that, but that painting worked with one hit. It happened and it worked and I felt it was very successful. And mm. then I was empty. I had nothing left. Yeah, right. But the stories with those young men and women continued and they had the stories. I mean, one of the great privileges of my life was to hear their stories, telling me what they'd witnessed, what it was like to be in combat, what happens when bullets are whipping past your face, what happens when one of your friends is hit with one of those trajectories. What do you do? How do you feel? How do you recover? How do you go back out the next day? Um, and those stories were breathtaking. Yeah. They were huge stories. Well, that painting you did that was an Archibald finalist painting at Captain S after Afghanistan. Yeah. That was a that was a very powerful painting, I think, and that, and I, I should mention that all these that they came to sit for you, um, yeah. the troops. Yeah, Cap, Captain S is is um, was a, an officer in the Second Commando Unit, and he told me a very graphic story about, um, and he was the first man that I asked to sit for me, and I asked him to make, to come up to think before we met of a pose. I mean, before we met, we'd met in Afghanistan, we'd become good friends. He trusted me to tell the stories that he had to give. Um, and I asked him before he came to my studio, think of a pose that sums up your experience of being in Afghanistan. And uh, he said the Battle of Marga, I'd never heard of it, but there was a battle every three days, three days on, three days off. He was involved in another combat situation. But this one particular position he was stuck in as a 
um, communications, he had communication gear on his back and they were out in the middle of nowhere and they were stuck behind a very low mud brick wall and Mm -hmm. he and his friend were there because he had to be out in the open for the communication gear to work and they were stuck there for six hours under fire while his the other rest of his group was were in a in a building protected but he had to stay there to keep the communication going to try and find where someone was people were shooting at them from all around this massive ancient valley and then a bullet hit his his friend his young mate below the testicles and it went straight into his body and it didn't come out and so then, obviously, I say you have this opportunity and responsibility to, to talk to Captain S about what happened. What what was your conversation? What were you thinking? Were you regretting being there? Um, and what did this young man say? And he, the reason he picked that pose is because he was stuck on his back with a very uncomfortable pack there for another six to eight hours trying to get air support to get this young man out when the bullet hadn't exited his body and the young man said over and over for hours, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And it's pretty fertile material to make a strong painting about even just recording that pose I felt was telling more about that story than I can ever make up. Yeah. And did he tell you that that day that you'd painted it or was that a story? That, that was during the sitting. During the sitting. Mm. And did you, do you think that affects your actual brush stroke? Or? Uh, no, I don't think so. I know how to paint. I know how to use material paint. I know how to do it. I think it just makes you very determined to do the best you can for him for his story. Yeah. And that's for every subject, I think. Once I find a subject that I'm interested in, and I actually have found that every single human being has something that I'm interested in. I like human beings. I like us. I like our stories. I like the warts. I like the dark and the light. And once you get starting, once a conversation starts, there is material to make a story about. Even if it's abject failure, that's a very genuine reason for me to make a painting, not just bravery, sadness, loss, um, all of the human condition I think is interesting. And it's something I'll say about the Archibald Prize. Everyone paints their heroes. What about painting the people you don't like? Trying to understand the people you don't understand I think is actually far more interesting reason to make a work Mm. not shane wasn't that but i went to afghanistan thinking why would anyone join up with the australian defense force why would you do that after vietnam 500 men were killed 520 people died why and they were mostly conscripted forced to go to vietnam i mean it's unbelievable that's the year before i was born they made thousands and thousands of young australians go to a war zone and many of them were killed then come to afghanistan why i went there i have to be honest pretty dubious what are you guys doing here and then instantly realized why you're there because you're, you you didn't do so well at school um, you, you're looking down the barrel at, at the first year apprenticeship as a plumber and getting treated like utter shit and paid nothing or go to Afghanistan, learn Pashtun, stand up for really vulnerable children, build a school for girls for the first time in three or four generations of that community having girls educated mm. um, and learn Afghan culture, travel to the other side of the world and stand up for something. Even if standing up for them, and a lot of those young men and women were standing up for the fact that we made a mistake by invading Iraq, they're pretty smart about the politics of of war and why we're there. 
and they felt it was a responsibility. We made the mistake of going into Iraq, therefore we need to clean up our mess. Yeah, right. I suppose that's how you have to cope with it somehow. You have to have it sort of um, some sort of story in your head to cope yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned the Archibald earlier. Uh, I just wanted to talk a bit about um, prizes and art prizes in general and to see what you thought about it because you've won three major – I mean, you've won more than three, but the Brett Wiley Travelling Arts Fellowship, the Doug Moran and the, and the Archibald uh, – do you think it's a good idea to enter art prizes? Do you think it's helped your career? Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. Although uh, people get so cut about not getting in, and you know what? So did I. And <laughs> I didn't get in lots of times, and I was crazy madness of I'm on my own in my studio freaking out. What have they got against me? And now I see it very clearly. The show's curated the best works get in, sometimes not the best works. There's 11 judges on the Archibald. Not all of them are into art the same way I am or you are or the artist who made the work is. Mm. Um, I really think artists should enter, absolutely. You get, for the Archibald, you get 11 people who collect art and are interested and powerful, intelligent, smart people. I mean, this thing that the trustees don't know anything about art is pretty laughable. Yeah, They're no, pretty I, serious people. I, I can imagine. But And do you... Um what do you look for when you're looking? looking at uh, I'm always lo- looking for uh, – oh, look, that's a good question. I, I like to find something that – if there's a confident, unique voice, I'm drawn straight to it. If I don't know that work, I'm drawn to it. I'm probably just quietly harsh on my friends, but I have to say, oh, this is my friend – and yeah, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure other trustees in the past haven't done that, but I can't help it. That's what I do. I say I have to say this is my friend, and I've got a lot of friends in the yeah. other world. <laughs> all my friends. So do you not? Do you in that case, if it's a friend, just not say no, anything? I don't vote. Right, you don't vote at all. Right, and I, I put my hand up and say this. This is a friend, and I I just don't feel that I can honestly, impartially give you my opinion. Yes, they should all be in there. <laughs> and look, I, and sometimes I know my my closest friends. I know their practice so well. If they put in something that's not the best they've ever done, I'm, I take it personally. Why would you not give me the best work you've ever made? <laughs> and I look, and it's seventh year of me doing it, or eighth, or whatever it is. I'm I'm getting better at it. I'll be good at it when I finish. But, but I'd say looking right back, you know, there was prizes early on that I entered. I may not have won, but the judges were really important people who saw my work and the only reason they see your work, it's actually got nothing to do with getting in. If you have a unique, strong um, practice and you are making work all the time and you enter those shows, the people who judge all of these prizes are the people who are... Who, who have positions of power in the art world and they're interesting, empowered, intelligent people. And if they keep seeing your work as a young artist or an emerging artist, then it's a, it's a no-brainer. It's a very good reason to enter. But winning it is just a lottery. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, ridiculous. Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm judging art is against 
everything I believe in. But in this country where we have no support for the arts, it is the way for us to be recognised. It is the way to get 300,000 people seeing an art show. The Archibald smashes all of the sports world out and I'll back it. I mean, and there's, there's portions of the art world that look down on the Archibald. Well, you go and make a dent in how to change this community to get people to actually respect what we do. And to see that the arts has a way of unpicking taboos, of changing the society for the better. Mm. Um, but the artists, sadly, are the, are the collateral damage because it is a hard feeling to not be hung or, and then for some not to win. But just be in it and yeah. remember why it's important for all of us that we all put our best foot forward. Yeah. And um, I noticed there's a lot of self-portraits the last few years. Um, do you think... Um, do you think that's a good thing? Yeah, I think it's a brilliant thing. Yeah. And I, look, saying that, as I said before, I don't know why people aren't painting the people that we all hate. And we, we artists are good at attacking each other, you know? <laughs> but if you, if you hate somebody, it's going to be a bit hard to sort no, of... No, I think that's think? a really genuine reason to make a great painting of someone you don't like. I'm, I'm waiting for a good painting of... Of what's his name? That's good. I've forgotten his name. The guy, He's a, who, a politician, yeah, I take yeah, it. Yeah, and it's good. I've forgotten his name. Someone make a painting of him. Get well, him to yeah, sign off. Well, yeah, but won't he know that uh, that uh, that's why they're making the painting? Well, I mean, no, make a genuine painting of that person. It's an important, valuable recognition and remembrance of what happened in our community. I, in my opinion, but there's been criticism. For years, I mean, criticism. I, I personally think really negative criticism about any art in this country is so counterproductive. Mm. We are struggling for audience. We are struggling for recognition. The art schools are being shut down. Then to write really negative stuff about artists' work, it's like just leave it. If you don't like it, don't write. Write something constructive. Help us build the audience. Help us build recognition. Um, it's not going to stop people writing negatively about me. That's water off my back now. I'm fine mm. with it. Do you think um, it's a bit of the tall poppy syndrome with that sort of thing in your case? Maybe that's human nature. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but, but as I said, they're genuine, really attacking me or attacking friends of mine who've done well. When, when you've got Fraser Anning, like there are genuine targets. There's appalling things happening around this country. And maybe we need to spend more time outside this country to realise how, in my opinion, dangerously on a cusp we are of going in very ugly directions. And my best friends who are great artists and writers and musicians all believe the same thing. The people who've got there and are successful all are worried about where this country is headed. And there's lots to make work about. They mm. say often that the, the best place to make work is where there is something to make work about. So in apartheid Africa, some great artists came out of all of the great upheavals and times of real social injustice. Some of the great art came out of there. Well, I've spent time with communities in this country that need all the support they can get. Look at Indigenous mm. Australians. Mm. I mean, Tony Albert's one of the great <laughs> leaders of this country at the moment in terms of culture in my opinion you talk to him about what's happened to his people for hundreds thousands of the last few hundred years after hundred thousand years of history we all need to get together and make work collegiately about what's happening here to try and make this place turn around well those that you the work that you've been doing the last few years the last supper series for example 
that sort of seems to be taken in a different direction. Actually, I've I got some um, messages from some of my listeners who sent me messages on Instagram, and that's one of the questions they asked um, about your most recent work. What has caused that change in direction? It's it's a bit more less figurative, a little bit more abstract than your previous work. Uh, lots of disembodied uh, body parts, um, a tangle of sometimes what look like limbs and forms. What um, is uh, that? Is I, that the sort of thing you're you sort of targeting? That what you're talking about now, like the sort of political. Yeah, I, I, I mean, for years and many years, I've been making work about my men, straight white men. I had a show at Pearl Lamb Galleries years ago called Straight White Male, and they're all making fun of me and my dad and my son and some of my mates. Uh, and it was an interesting show to have in that context in that country. Um, and I've always, I studied feminist theory when I was in my late 20s at University of Western Sydney. I thought it would answer, give me some, help me understand my own self and my own men and the, the totally dysfunctional way we were operating in the world. Um, so the Last Supper show, which was in Melbourne at Talano Galleries, was about that really, about my sense of the anxiety that I felt about the way the world was headed at, m- at our hands, at my ha- men's hands. Yeah. Um, uh, and I won't show What am I going to do? I mean, there's a criticism that I'm a straight white male, so I get more opportunities. Well, they need to talk to my mum. My mum had three of us. Um, and all three of us are pretty much the same. We're all doing work in different areas, but we all share in common this sense of social justice. That's my parents' fault but I wouldn't be anyone else. And I expect my children to follow in those footsteps as well. And my brother's children will be exactly the same. Mm. Um, so the work, the more recent works is really about my own anxiety about the world. And if you have children, then I, I think we people aren't brave enough to say that they are really worried for their children and even more worried for their grandchildren. Um, and I, that's the, I think I need to study climate science before I can properly speak to those things. Yeah. But my, the quickest outlet for me, the most visceral response immediately is to make paintings about it and it ended up being that really those works are about a, my anxiety and more broadly that sense of collective anxiety, which I think will become a big problem just for us as functioning humans in the future. Yeah. Well, I think it's sort of also compounded by um, social media, internet. Mm. I mean, everything's been revved up 100%, well, more 1,000% as a result. Um, so we're all feeling, I think, a little bit more anxious about things. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, as you say, with good cause. My brother's a scientist. Yeah. He's an ag scientist. He's been living in the Philippines trying to help those communities learn how to adapt to climate change and to keep them fed, simple things like that. And he said to me years ago, the Bengal Delta has 50-something million people living there and it's an average of 20 centimetres above sea level. 50 million people are going to be knocking on our door in years to come with the, with the most conservative view of what climate change will do. And he's a scientist. You know, I'm lucky enough to have, as my brother, who was the most conservative of the three of us, he's a realist, he's a conservative realist. He is very concerned about what's happening in the world. And I've, I, he's, he's a PhD, very successful PhD graduate of Sydney Uni and now fully qualified scientist who's studying climate and trying to help communities now through DFAT in Australia survive in the face of massive environmental change 
I mean, it's kind of unfashionable to talk about it because it's bleak. Well, but that's right. I it's was going to say truth. to you, is it, do you think it's compassion fatigue? And it, well, not, well, not quite but compassion fatigue, but sort of fear fatigue. <laughs> I mean, there was, because it's been something that's been debated for so many years now, mm. and we've sort of can't keep worrying about it. So people try and sh- just cut it out. I don't know. What do you think? No, I think it's only being debated now. Before, I mean, I remember David Suzuki when I was about year six saying that we had reached a critical mass of humans on the earth for the amount of energy we needed. And if we kept going this way, we would cause catastrophic damage to the environment. And that's 20, 30 years ago. And there was no debate. He just said it and it was out into the ether and everyone ignored it because at that point, after the Great Depression, I think, we became, once we survived the Depression, the Western world became very good at looking after themselves and looking at themselves in the mirror and this sort of communal narcissism, um, all about yourself and nothing about community. And so those things just did go into an echo chamber. But now it's being debated. And I think things will change very, very dramatically. In the next 10 years, there'll be a huge shift in policy around the world. And I think we need to remember, only a few months ago, there was such heatwaves in Europe that it's, it's, it's in a, engendered massive, massive disruption. The community is on edge and angry and standing up against it. So it's as sadly as summer revolves around the earth, each summer will rev up more and more and more passion to stand up for the environment. Yeah. Well, that's um, you. I think you said about this show that it's something that it's you want to sort of bring compassion and empathy to the forefront of the nation's um, debate. Yeah, I did say that. I can't believe it. It's what? Because how up myself is that? That's it's not ridiculous. up yourself. No, because I, I, I was called a bleeding heart by a very right-wing commentator and it was a really aggressive threat. You know, it was a put-down that I'm a bleeding heart. I thought, really, am I a bleeding heart? The same man called me un-Australian a few years before for holding a vigil for my, my oh mate, Myron. Yeah. He said that's un-Australian that it would happen in, in, um, in the middle of Sydney. Mm. And I, I just thought, well, if that's the truth... Do I own that? Am I a bleeding heart? Is that a negative connotation? Am I, is that bad? No, fuck that. That's exactly who I am and I'm not, I'm not changing who I am to suit really extremists. Mm. Those people are extremists. I'm not an extremist. I practice being middle of the road. I practice trying to like people from both extremes of politics. I think that's an interesting sport in 2019 to understand people who are, have diametrically different view to you mm. and generally you find that you'll you'll come to an agreement and you'll possibly like each other yeah yeah, yeah this polarization um Ugly. especially on social media and everything yeah. yeah as you say the extremists on both sides it's just um it's so difficult to have a civil debate about anything yeah you know? it just escalates which is very dangerous yeah Debate well, is what will save us. Yeah, exactly. Coming to a common agreement, coming to an understanding, coming to compassion for each other. Yeah. If we don't have that, we're in deep trouble. We're at war with each other, let alone the enemy. Mm. Well, I think one of the best paintings, um, which really for me brought forward the feeling of compassion, is the 
life life vest, the life saving vest. Hmm. Um, when you went to Syria uh, with Richard Flanagan and hmm. witnessed the fleeing of the refugees, and it was a single painting. Well, you did a number of paintings of these uh, life vests, but um, this one is just a single one. And um, it's just in its simplicity, it, it just says so much. Mm. Uh, is that difficult to come up with an image after that experience? Oh, look, I came back from there and we spent two weeks travelling around refugee camps and on a very fast, tight deadline from one to the next, we saw a massive amount, a huge population of people who'd been displaced, who'd lost everything. And it's one of the... Um, misconceptions in Australia that Syrians would want to leave to find a better country in Germany. I didn't meet one Syrian who wasn't absolutely broken that they'd had to leave their home, their history. I mean, the oldest Christian church in the world is in Syria. The history and beauty of that place is beyond our understanding in this country, unless you're Indigenous, really. Um, Mm. And they are leaving because their, their world was destroyed and indirectly destroyed because of our invasion of Iraq. So it was kind of heartbreaking yeah, for been. Richard and I to be to see that. Yeah, yeah. Then to come back here and try and work out what I would do, I'd filled two bags filled with life vests and I then I bought thousands of them back. I felt like a responsibility to bring them back because there was all these huge um, waste problems on those little islands of Greece in in an economy that was completely flailing. I thought, I can help. I'll bring some and maybe they'll become artworks. Mm. Uh, And then really I just went back to what I'd learnt from being in Afghanistan. Just tell the story. It's right in your face. There it is. The life vest is is the the form, is a a mould of the human that wore it. And some of them are tiny little things that fitted on six-year-old children and some of them are big vests for overweight adults. And every single one of them carried for me the memory of the person that wore it, even though they were nameless people that I would never meet. Um, And when they got to safety, if they crossed successfully, they would take that vest off, throw it in the bush and generally take their clothes off, light a fire and try and warm themselves in the middle of the night, remembering that in the middle of winter when I was there in that part of, of of the Greek islands from Turkey, it was minus 20 in the middle of the night mm. and families were crossing oh wet through in boats without armatures so they were, they were just a floating rubber duck. It must have been miserable. Well, how do you cope when you come back? How do you adjust to after experiencing something like that? And like then just we all do, go to, to the studio. What else is the studio for? I can deal with anything. It's your I mean, haven. It's yeah. a critic- hard criticism is the least of my worries. Yeah. Can I talk about the studio? Um, do you have a routine? Because often, um, you know, uh, artists who listen to the podcast are interested in that sort of thing. Do you? Do yeah, you have- I work really, really hard. I'm I'm obsessed with my practice. I love being in my studio. It took me years to learn that quite often you're in the studio not producing. You need to be there. You need to be present in that studio with the materials, with the smell, mm. with the process. But you can also train yourself and that's why practice is such a poignant word, I think. I mean, people look down on it. It is practice, like yoga practice or football practice. I still play third grade cricket. You know, and if you practice, you'll, you'll, you'll bowl well, you'll bat well. In the studio, the more you practice, the better the outcome will be, the less mistakes you'll make. Although layering mistakes is one way I make very good paintings. In fact, quite often I'll keep the mistake there and destroy the part that works 
most recently in the most recent paintings that's become a really interesting way of making a painting and making something of the mistake and making many mistakes to make a painting is a talks about chaos and anxiety in the world the way it is right now um i have two small children and and my partner kylie and so i'm i live to their hours i'm with them when they can be with me i pick them up drop them to school and pick them up um, and the rest of the time I'm a dad and I garden and play with them and do stuff with them. I'd be, I'd be there more, but I only have them. Joey's in year eight. He'll be gone in four or five years studying art, he says, which is terrifying. <laughs> he's but, a good artist. Yeah, he's great at it, but he's good at guitar. He's good at cricket. There's lots of things he can do. It will be hard to follow in your parents' footsteps, but I won't stop him doing it. Mm. Um, and mm. I'm with them. But mm. when they're gone, I'll be I'll move Kylie if she'd let me into her, my studio, and I'll be there through the night and the day. There's a lot of paintings to make in 2019. Oh, I can't wait to see them, Ben. Thank you so much Pleasure. for your time Thanks today. Thanks for having me. What a great artist! I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ben Quilty. Apart from going to the exhibition, which I strongly recommend, make sure you see director Catherine Hunter's documentary called Quilty Painting the Shadows, which will air on the ABC on Tuesday the 19th of November and will be available on iview after that. Catherine tracks his artistic process in the studio as he completed one of his most challenging works. And if you haven't already, why not subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or however you get your podcast. It's absolutely free. And make sure you get a look at the Talking With Painters YouTube channel if you haven't already, and you can subscribe to that as well for free. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters.